Thank you, Sam. Good morning, everyone. Beautiful day. Beautiful day to be in church, listening to a message. Okay, if you've got your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Book of Romans, please. Romans chapter 7. We're going to be continuing on from, from last week, but we're starting a new chapter. Before we make our start, let's, uh, let's seek a little prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you for gathering us together, dear Lord, to hear the word of God, to hear it preached, dear Lord, that we might be able to grow, that we may be able to know your word, dear Lord, that it would affect our lives, that we would be willing and able, dear Father, to bring fruit unto the Lord to share the wonderful truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, to a dying world. We pray, dear Lord, that as we live our life with joy, we can do so, Father. We ask you, dear Lord, that you would awaken both our hearts and minds to be able to receive your word this morning. Be patient with me, dear Father, I pray, and help me bring clarity to the scriptures. We thank you, dear Father, in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Romans chapter 7, let me be reading from verse 1 to verse 13 this morning. Paul says this, he says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that, a, that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in, the, in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Now I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. It's an incredible book, the book of Romans. But... 
there's parts to the book. I don't know, maybe it's just me. I don't know if you've noticed it. But there's some things within the Bible that are a little difficult to understand. Maybe it's just me. But we've got to remember that Paul is continuing on in his theme. He's continuing on in declaring to all of us that there has been a change in our lives. If you are born again and you've been bought by the blood of Christ, that that change is absolute. And he continues that theme right up until this last verse. Then he'll go on from here and he'll explain a little bit more about the life that we are to live into Christ. But we're not going to be dealing with that first thing this morning. So the title that I've given the message to help just summarise what we're talking about this morning is Fruit Unto God. Fruit Unto God. That's the title of the message. And I'm going to be giving it in three parts. Typical Baptist method. I'm trying to learn really well from what school taught me, you know, so just three-part outline. And so, and I try and keep these in the same thoughts. And believe it or not, these outlines are more for my benefit than for yours, I think, because otherwise, oh, I've got a habit of really going onto rabbit trails, as our uh, meetings on Wednesday night would bear witness. So, so the first point is fruit through a changed espousal. Fruit through a changed espousal. The second point will be fruit through a changed beneficiary. Fruit to a changed beneficiary. And the third point is fruit by a changed conscience. So that'll help summarise this portion of the Bible that we're in. So fruit through a changed espousal. What we see here, Paul is comparing the new state of a Christian as being dead to the law and gives a practical example in the form of a changed espousal. And he says this, read with me again from verse 1. He says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit, Unto God. So Paul's using the example of the death of a spouse, death of a spouse being the simplest observation of a legally and truly changed covenant. Okay, it's the simplest observation. Here he describes that that only the death of one party can alter the constitution from which they serve. And and it's without question. And before we go on, don't don't get the impression that regarding marriage, it doesn't mean that only death can biblically separate a married couple. But it does mean that the death of a spouse is the clearest form of true and legal separation. Does that make sense? It's the clearest form. You can't now um, not say that you're an adulterer if you're married to somebody else when your spouse has passed away. Okay, it's absolutely clear. My wife works in family law and she knows how unclear separations can can really, really be. So 
Here, Paul is giving us the simplest, clearest and legal way of being able to deal with this. So in this case, the woman could not be called an adulteress because she is free from that law and free to be married to another man. Now, Paul gives you the reason for this similitude, this example in verse 4. In that last verse of that fourth portion, the first portion that we're dealing with, he says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. There's, there's two interesting things to draw from this, and you'll need to put your thinking caps on and, have a, and, and listen to what Paul's doing. The first one, you'll notice that in Paul's example, the husband is a picture of the law, right? Did you notice that? So the husband is the picture of the law. Okay, the husband, she's bound by the husband, having the husband is bound by the law to her husband, okay? Husband is the picture of the law, and the Christian is a picture of the wife, or the one that's espoused to Christ. She's the bride of Christ. But here, as he finishes here in verse 4, where he says, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, you'll notice that it's not the husband that's dead. It's the wife. It's not the husband that's died here, it's the wife. Dead to the law. You are become dead to the law that you should be married to another. Now, why is that? What's, what's that? What an interesting idea. One of the things that's really important, remember I mentioned last week, God is very, very, very careful not to contradict his own, his own word. He's really careful to do that. Because you see, if the law be dead, we've got a problem. We've got a problem with what the scriptures teach. Because elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus made it really, really clear. He said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill See, it's not the law that's dead. The law stays and remains. The law is holy, pure, just and good. There is nothing wrong with the law. The law didn't need to die. But we did. We needed to die to the law. The second point of that is that we are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. So, this is the part that I need you to consider. The law of God is the literary manifestation of the justice of God. Like like Jesus Christ is the physical manifestation, the physical representation and the physical manifestation of God. He appeared clearly in form that we may know him. Okay, Just so the law in a literary form written down is a manifestation of the justice of God. The law being the literal manifestation of the justice of God, it is then fitting that that same law be fulfilled by the death of his Christ. It was the death of the just one that justified all who believe in him. And Romans 3.26 says, To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Um, it's really hard, hard to, to try and expand on. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples so you can try and make it clear. If God is himself just, and his law is the written appearance of the justice of God, 
And if Jesus himself is the very manifestation of God in the flesh, and his life is the keeper of the law without sin, then his death procures for all the law-fulfilled and perfect justice. Okay, so perfect justice requires perfect appeasement. All that was fulfilled by the body of Christ. So it was all fulfilled by Christ. In other words, again, the manifestation of God, Jesus, fulfilled the manifestation of the justice of God, the law. Clear as mud? Well done. Good stuff. All right, there'll be an exam at the end of class this, this morning, so I hope you've got it. That's why the scriptures say that he gave, a, he gave his life as a ransom for many in Mark 10.45. And why God had set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins in Romans 3.25. And finally why through him we have received the atonement in Romans chapter 5 verse 11. For what purpose? What was the reason why God did all this? Why did he do all this for you? Why did he do all this for you? Well, it says it here, that we might bring forth fruit unto God. The fruit we have through a changed espousal, and the reason we are married to another is to bring forth fruit unto God. You know, we've talked about this since chapter 5, how Paul is doing everything he can to nail home for you the one that's born again, the one that's bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would know and understand what salvation means to you. And he expects you to know. He expects you to know. We saw in chapter 5 that much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him in verse 9 of chapter 5. And then he says again in verse 18, Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men, to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That's just chapter 5. Chapter 6 again explains to us and tells us and commands us basically to reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse 11, he, says, he, he mentions to us that changed constitution that I mentioned to you previously. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And now we've got chapter 7 to help clarify it yet again. You know, Paul's working really, really hard here to try and teach you and show you the simplicity that there is in Jesus Christ. If you have been saved by Christ, the salvation that you have is absolute. Maybe I'm preaching to the converted, but I know that our own struggles with sin causes us to doubt these things. There is a simplicity in Christ. And an interesting cross-reference to this. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's, it's funny how the Lord, while you're writing these messages, the Lord brings a certain phrase into your mind. And I didn't link it until I thought I'd look up the verse. So I thought about the simplicity in Christ. And I've used that phrase before when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody. That there is just such a simplicity. If you believe in him, you shall be saved. And that's the end of it. 
but I didn't think about where that was actually placed until I looked up the, uh, the contents. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, have a look at verse 2. It says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. We've got denominations all over the world that are corrupting the idea, the whole, the whole understanding of salvation, the whole understanding about the way that we can find ourselves not only approved by God, but atoned through His blood. When we, when, we, when we look at the text and what the Scripture actually teaches, there is a simplicity. But no, today what we have is an incredible amount of systems that we involved that we have involved. We have religious systems that we need to do this in order to maintain our favour with God. And it doesn't matter whether it's Roman Catholicism or, or, uh, or different ideas of, um, of, of Protestantism. Biblical Christianity boats boasts that it is a simplicity within Christ. How do we apply this? Why is it so important that you should know that you are not only saved and secure, not only are you separate from the law, but you are dead to the law, completely to Christ? Um, the apostles spent the best part of three chapters describing our perfect state. First reason that we should know we are secure in our hope that we may bring forth fruit unto God. We need to know that we are secure in that hope that we will bring forth fruit unto God. See, you know, our, our struggle with sin, um, and it's a struggle that the Apostle is going to detail in, in later on in chapter 7, it can leave us joyless and miserable. And... Um, Particularly when we think that our hope is found within ourselves. When we think that we've got to be good. When we think that we've got to be right. Well, we do need to be. But when you think that it's all up to us, then I don't know about you, but it leaves me miserable because I can't. I can't. I try. I try. But it's like, it's like climbing a mountain that I just can't get to the top of. Imagine trying to climb a mountain with a pebble in your shoe. You know? It's just, it's just impossible. You just, you just can't do it. You just can't get up there. It leaves us jawless and miserable when our hope is found within ourselves. But when we know that we are dead to sin and that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, us from all sin, then our hope is secure in Him, that we trust His power, not ours, to bring fruit unto God. The second reason is that we would know and practice grace toward our brethren that they might bring fruit unto God. Now, a lack of understanding of the doctrine of salvation is eventually going to foster either a judgmental or a licentious um, notion within the church. It doesn't, it doesn't take much to do that. When we, when, we, when we understand that it's by grace that we are saved, our lack of grace is demonstrated by a quickness to find fault in others, together with a slowness to find fault within ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe, again, it's just me. When I'm struggling with sin, I've got such a close relationship to sin that I can easily spot it in somebody else. You know? Why? Because my proximity to sin is so close, you know? 
I can, I can see it in somebody else straight away. And when I'm frustrated because I haven't dealt with it appropriately, what do I do? I point it out in other people, you know? Oh, did you see so-and-so today? They weren't wearing a tie. <laughs> you know? <laughs> wicked, wicked, sinful, evil. You know? Sorry, Phil, I wasn't talking about you. But, you know, I mean, it doesn't take much. You know, we, we've spoken about it before. You know, I don't like the way they looked at me this morning. Well, maybe it's the way you looked at them, you know. We don't know, but our, our, problem, our problem is if we haven't dealt within, with sin within ourselves, if we don't understand the grace of God and the love of God and His nurturing of our own souls, if we think that somehow it's up to us to be perfect before a holy God, then we're not going to be able to have that grace that would be willing to share and forgive and love other people that are struggling in the same way that you are. In the same way. We, we can't afford to be judgmental. We can't. We can't. We have to know that it is by grace that we are saved. Through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You know? Now I came out of another church and the other church is the complete opposite. An overindulgence of grace evidences in licentiousness. And it fosters an apologetic lifestyle of sin rather than our mortification of it. When we overindulge grace, and I mean that in, in the way that not just that we accept it, but we use it as an excuse for a lifestyle that is anything but of God. It does two things. Number one... You can't be satisfied in it. You can never be satisfied in it. It's like a fire that's unquenchable. It doesn't just stop at that, but you can't be satisfied. If you're born again, you also have the Spirit of God which is within you that grieves it. It grieves it. So you can't be satisfied within it. It doesn't satisfy. But it also does something else. It shows to the world something that they know. The world knows it instinctively that um, you're behaving like this and you're calling yourself a Christian, you know? But why do they know? They know because, as I said last week, uh, last week, they know that we are under a different constitution. We are under a different governance now, you know? They know that if we are Christians... Notice they don't expect anything from Buddhists. There's no expectation there. There's no expectation from those in Islam. There's no expectation from Roman Catholics. Uh, Roman Catholics. There is none. There is none. But you know, you stand up and you say that you're a Christian. They know the character of Christ, even though they don't believe in him. They know him. And they know if you are one, if you're a Christ one, then your behaviour should be as his. And that's what they're expecting to see. So sharing the gospel is going to be very, very difficult. And the third one is not understanding why Christ came and died manifests itself in a lack of love for Jesus. Uh, this is the most evident of all. You can see the love, one ha- the, the love that someone has for Christ. You can see it. You can see it in them. You can see it in their communication. You can see it in their actions and their zeal. You can see it in their heart for the lost. You can see it in how they devote their time. And finally, you can see it in their love for the brethren. That's the one that you can see the most. You can see it in their love for the brethren. And that's why the Lord says um, that you will they will know me by the love you have one toward another. 
There's something happening in these last of days. And Jesus made it clear. He says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. The love of many will wax cold. What is it that stops our love for Christ? It's iniquity. It's our own sin. It's our own sin and not dealing with it effectively. But it stems a lot of the time from not knowing where we stand in Christ. From not knowing and understanding that we are changed. And that there needs to be a fruit in that respect. And it's a fruit that is directly given to God through a changed espousal. Second point. Fruit to a changed beneficiary. There is a beneficiary of our fruit. There is a beneficiary. He says, verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So we see the fruit unto death as opposed to fruit unto God. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. All of chapter 7 is an explanatory note, right? All of chapter 7 explains things. It's trying to explain things. But here, here in this portion between verse 4 and verse 5, we have a purpose statement. The only purpose statement that's found in chapter 7 here. The only purpose statement. It is that we should bring forth fruit unto God. But the beneficiaries changed. Because up until this point, we were doing what? And notice that Paul speaks in the first person. He speaks in the, um, in the, plural, in the plural, but he's including himself in there. He says we, he says our. Right? He's making a picture and, a, and, a, and an understanding that he's included in this. This was part of him. This was what my life was like before too. You know? We were bringing forth fruit unto what? Fruit unto death. But now there's a changed beneficiary. Who was benefiting before? Death was. Death was. And we understand that. We read it in Romans chapter 6 last week. The wages of sin is what? It's, it's death. It's death. So our fruit unto death, but now we should be bringing forth fruit unto God, a changed beneficiary. Who do you want to benefit from your actions? What person is it that you want to benefit from your action? We know that death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. There is a person that's going to benefit from your actions. It's either the Lord or it's death. It's really interesting though. Have a look at the last five words of chapter 4. Alright, just, just count them back right, from that point. Bring forth fruit unto God. Have a look at the last five words of chapter 5. Bring forth fruit unto death. Think God's trying to draw a link here? Think He's trying to draw a link. There's a direct link. There's a change in beneficiary here. We can either bring forth fruit unto God or fruit unto death. Verse 5, he says, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. 
You know, I reckon there's a lot of hospitals around today that can actually show you really, really clearly that sin brings forth fruit unto death. You know, and we don't, we don't, we don't have time to go through all the different ways that sin can actually bring forth death. But we know that that's the beneficiary. The beneficiary is ultimately death. We've got to remember something really, really important. You know, the world has their, their fundamental premise, which is if it feels good, do it. That's their doctrine. Okay? Um, that's their doctrine. The motions of sins which are in their members. It's the mantra of the world. They justify their lusts as that which comes naturally. Don't they say that? You do it because it's naturally. We naturally feel this way. And to them, they're correct. It is natural. It is completely natural to them because they are not only willing participants of sin, but they are slaves. They are slaves to it. We we are not sinners because we sin. You've heard this before. We're not sinners because we sin. We, We sin because we're sinners. Claim that you need to live life and enjoy the fruit of the body for all it's worth. Live life. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be going out there living life. What does that mean? When someone says, I want to go out there and I want to live life, what do they mean? What are they saying? It's pretty much do whatever they feel like, isn't it? And what do they feel like doing? Usually it's one range of debauchery to another. You know, It's one form of it to another. It's one of the reasons why I detest schoolies. You know, the schoolies habit, the schoolies thing, when you've got young people at this particular point in their life where now all of a sudden not only can they drive, but they can drink alcohol legally within this country, and then they all of a sudden leave school, what do they find? That they are now free to do what? And how does it manifest itself? You know, every year so far someone's died at schoolies. And I won't go into how many people have had abortions as a result of schoolies. Okay? There is debauchery in that, in that festivity. Okay? At a time in their lives where they can make the worst possible decisions of their life. And enhanced and encouraged by their peers, people that are around them. Very, very difficult not to be caught up in the sway of that. It's something that I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't like it at all. But, you know, we've got, it. we've got it ingrained even in the United States Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable that all men are created equal and independent. That from that, equally crea- oh, sorry. that from that equal creation they derive rights inherent and unalienable, among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. What does the fleshly man want to make him happy? Whenever he feels like Whatever he feels like. It's the motions of sin. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The text that we're going through has got bad news and good news. Did you notice that? Alright? And I want, you know, I really like it. I'd love to be able to stand up here and just give you all the good stuff, you know. Because I know we like to leave and we want to feel really good. But we don't like to hear the bad stuff. That's sort of natural for us. We want, we want feelings of good things. But, you know, within the bad, within the bad, gives you an understanding of the good that you might not have had before. You know, this is only bad news for those that want to remain in their sin. 
But this is perfect and beautiful and wonderful for those that know they've separated themselves from it through the, through the blood of Christ. There's a consequence to sin. Please turn your Bibles to chapter 9 of Mark. Mark chapter 9. If it's true that the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, who do you think would know and would desire your eternal salvation more than anybody else? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. Do you think he would know what the wages of sin is death actually means? I think he knows more than anybody else. That's why he is the one that warns more than anybody else in Scripture. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 43. Speaking about offences, things that are offending, he says, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. The Lord knows the end of sinners. He knows the end of them. He knows where they will find themselves. And he is grieved in heart that they would go there, but that they would believe in him. And have eternal life. But this is the end of sin. The end of sin is death, guys. It's, it, this, isn't, this isn't just some sort of fluff that we can deal with here. You know, every single day, each one of you is walking past someone who, if they die right there and then, they will find themselves in hell. We're doing it every day. Where's our heart? Where's our heart for the lost? We're so entwined within ourselves, you know. We're so full of our own selves and our own misery and our own joy and our own, you know, we're not thinking about the lost that are, that are around us. This is the purpose of the church. This is the purpose of the church as the people of the church. To preach the gospel, to bring the gospel to a dying world. Jesus knows their end. Was he being figurative here? Huh. When you understand what you're comparing eternity with no he's not being figurative here he's being absolutely clear if it was possible that your eye could offend you to cast you into hell you better pluck it out if there's no other solution better for you to get rid of it he's not being figurative he's been absolutely literal because he understands what hell is and he knows that it's there for all eternity this is the bad news why won't some hear it some of you have been listening to these same messages for years I don't know where your heart's at. I don't know. I'm not a judge of it. But this is the warning that we have. So the purpose statement that we have for us is that we might bring forth fruit unto God. Do you know what the Lord's purpose statement is? Here's a simple one. This is, this is why, this is why he, he, he's, he's so um, passionate to expound this in, in, in Mark. He says it in Luke chapter 9, 19, 10. He says, For the Son of Man is to come to seek and to save that which is lost. You know, a purpose statement for our Lord, that's it. What's our purpose statement? To bring forth fruit unto God. How do we do it? To help the Lord in His purpose statement. You know, 
to seek and to save that which was lost. We preach the gospel that we might indeed save some. Third point. Third point in the scripture here is fruit by a changed conscience. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. It says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Paul draws a thought from the minds of his readers in the beginning of this text and he's considering that if the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death and that if we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter then does that conclude that the law itself is sin? So many rhetorical questions isn't there in the book of Romans because Paul's trying to answer the questions that are coming up within our own minds. He's trying to answer them. How does Paul answer it? He answers it again with an emphatic, God forbid. And then explains why. He says, Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. The law brings to us a consciousness of sin. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. It's interesting. Paul uses the tenth commandment. It's the only one of all the ten that cannot be witnessed externally. (laughs) And the only one of all the ten that can affect the nine commandments that precede it. Effect. You notice I said effect. E, not affect. Effect. I put that in the computer and I'm typing it out as I'm writing. Uh, my little autocorrect kept on coming up going, no, you're trying to say effect. No, no, I'm trying to say effect. What's the difference? Well, you can be affected by something, but you can't effect something unless you're actually consciously doing something with it. Covetousness. That's the one that Paul wants to use. It's possibly the worst of all the commandments. We don't think it is, do we? Isn't it interesting how, how you, you can show yourself to be good by not stealing. You can show yourself to be good by not murdering. You can show yourself to be good in church by worshipping the one and only God and not entering into idolatry. You can show yourself to be good by honouring your parents. You know, you can show yourself to be good in all these things, but man, you can covet like mad and nobody would know. <laughs> yes. Coveting is the lustful desire of that which you do not have. Now guys, I've read commentary after commentary of those who say that it's only desiring something that belongs to someone else. 
you know. This, this safely limits coveting for us, doesn't it? He, he puts it in a really nice little box there. You've got to put it over there on the shelf. So I don't really do that, you know. I don't, I don't lust after anybody else's wife. I'll just put it over there. You know? I don't lust after anybody else's car. I'll just put, pick that up and put it over there. And can I tell you something with all honesty? If it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to somebody else. If it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to somebody else. You can covet a car in a new car sales showroom. I'm sorry, but you can. Okay? You can covet a caravan if you want to. That's been mine for a while. Alright? You can do that. And you know what it does? It stirs up these passions within you that you just have to have it. You know? You have to have it. And, and, and it creates these desires. Why does God hate that? Why does he hate it? Because it demonstrates a lack of contentment. It demonstrates a lack of contentment. As Christians, are we to demonstrate a lack of contentment? Are we not content? Isn't, isn't Jesus everything that we need? Isn't Christ all that we need? Doesn't it fill your heart with joy knowing that you have eternity, a reward in heaven that perishes not away? Doesn't, doesn't that give you that contentment? Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. He says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Imagine writing that from a prison cell. Not the prison cells we have today. Not the prison cells with uh, tennis tables, billiard tables and everything else that you can possibly desire. No, we're not talking about the prison cells of today. We're talking about the prison cells of yesteryear where Paul <laughs> requested with all his heart that you could uh, ask his, I can't remember who it was, to bring his coat and to bring his parchments, he was allowed to have something at least to read and to write. But it would have been cold in those cells. No manufactured heating that we have today. Whatever the weather is outside, that's what it is inside, brethren. And what was Paul saying? From that state, from a prison cell, chances are looking forward to nothing but death. And whatsoever state I am therewith, to be content. To be content. Uh, we're not content. We're discontent. Paul doesn't bring out coveting for no reason. He understands that we all wrestle with coveting. But I want to bring up to you an understanding that coveting is not a, a small sin. Matter of fact, it's the foundation of them all. It seems to be the foundation of them all. The nature of sin works consciously against the commandments of the law to wreak all manner of concupiscence. The text there in verse 8 says, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Concupiscence. Can we move on? You all know what that means? Good. Well, concupiscence has got a relationship with coveting. Okay, the Oxford Dictionary responds to it this way. It says, The inordinate desire... For temporal ends, 
which has its seat in the senses. It has its seat in the senses. We feel. We feel. We go by feelings. It's the motions of sin that's working within our lives. Verse 8 says, For without the law sin was dead. But I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Oh, I wish I had the time. I'm not sure if I do. I wish I had the time to go into all of this. And there's going to be elements of this I'm going to have to bring out next time we get together. But what does it mean that Paul was alive? When was Paul ever alive without the law? When the law was already in place during the time of Moses. When was Paul alive without the law? Does he mean that figuratively or does he mean that literally? Was there in a literal time that he was alive without the law? You know, there's, there's a couple of positions on this. Both of them very, very, very good. One of them naturally is, a, is, a, is a, an idea of an accountability, a point of accountability that children get to. In other words, the idea that all children are saved up until the age of accountability. And then all of a sudden the law has the effect on them, Okay. Uh, the idea usually comes to you know the age of around about 20 years old. They get that position based on what it says in uh, in the Old Testament that up until the age of 20 years old they can go uh, they 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 are not to go to battle. Okay, after the age of 20 they can go to battle. Uh, it's also referred to there in Exodus where you see that or in Numbers where all those that are under the age of 20 are able to make it into the Promised Land. All those that were over the age of 20 perished in the wilderness. All right, so that's where they get that idea. Uh, where it sort of confuses that is that the bar mitzvahs are usually held when they're around about 13 years of age. What does bar mitzvah mean? Bar mitzvah means son of the law. Son of the law. Interesting, isn't it? But he brings that out and he believes that they believe that that's literal because wherever it says about death and dying to sin and being found to be dead indeed to sin is found right throughout Scripture. We see that evidence right throughout Scripture. The only, other, the only problem is the other position about having uh, an age of accountability. You really, really need to dig to try and draw some of those things out. The other position is that it's, um, it's, a, uh, it's based on the level of ignorance to the law. It's based on the level of ignorance to the law. There's some reasons why I sort of lean that way, but I'll, I'll stand here when I say that because I, I, I really I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going to be using that to actually draw this out that Paul was ignorant to the law. He says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Okay, so just as the knowledge of our temporal laws reveals to us our breaking of them, but almost always not until the law itself surprises us in the act. You notice that you could sort of ignore the law? You ever notice that? I don't know, maybe, it's, again, it's just me. You know, The law has this, has this siren sound when you notice that your foot is a little bit heavy on the accelerator. You know, And just when you do it, it's like, don't! Right? Straight away, you're caught. Straight away, you feel the presence of the law. We can ignore it, though, as long as we don't hear the siren sound. We can ignore putting our hand in the cookie jar, as long as we don't feel the slap across the hand. All right? We could ignore stealing something with our hands, as long as we're not caught in the act. And we could, we could sort of, sort of recognise and, and take heed that it's probably true, those T-shirts, that it's not illegal unless you're caught. 
you know? Let me ask you a question, though. We've got to be thankful, in one point, that the police are not omnipresent. All right? Are we? We're thankful that they're not everywhere. They are working on it. They are working on it, aren't they, Alan? You are. You are. Right? They are working on being everywhere. You know? And we can be thankful, perhaps, that they're not omniscient. All right? They're not all-knowing. Brethren, I hate to tell you this, but they are working on it. They are definitely working on knowing everything you do, everywhere you go. How many people got iPhones? Yes, yes. doesn't matter what phone you've got, as long as you've got a GPS unit in there. Believe me, they can know where you are. They are working very hard on it. And thankfully also, though, that they're not omnipotent. They're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful. Though I have to tell you, that's their desire. Their desire is to be all-powerful. But you know what? God is. God is. God is. He is all of those things. What makes us think that the wages of sin will not be death? He is all those things. He knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. He knows everything. But why is it that we can continue in this way? Well, because the law itself hasn't actually been manifested to us. It hasn't demonstrated itself to us. It hasn't demonstrated it to the world. So the New Testament has the law fulfilled, though, in the body of Christ. And only those who have been found in Christ are dead indeed to sin. Paul goes on in verse 11, he says, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. He recognised the commandment of God. He understood it, he saw it, it impacted him, and he recognised right now at this point, I am dead. I am dead. Wherefore, he says, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. The last point, remember, is called fruit by a changed conscience. The effect of the law is to awaken awaken the conscience to both its sin and its penalty. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. See, Paul uses the lack of contentment, coveting, as the purest, simplest form, evident, of sin in the heart of man is his example. It's this sin is in plague proportions today, and it is. It manifests itself in everything from entertainments to drug addictions of all kind, from greed to murder, from laziness to theft, from selfishness to idolatry. This is the effect of coveting in the heart of man. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, please. Hebrews chapter 2. The last portion of text that we're going to be reading into this morning. One of the heartbreaking things are that we, we, we think that for some reason, when we look at those that are, that are walking around and they're walking around in sin, on the one hand, we have the good news to be able to share with them. But on the other hand, the, the thing that grieves me and grieves my heart is that, and it should grieve all of us, 
is that there are those that believe that they will not receive a recompense of reward, that they will not receive the wages of sin. You know, the Bible makes the opposite so clear that there are something that's going to be earned. And what's going to happen if they won't accept this message? What will happen if the gospel itself is heard but not heard? What will, what, what will happen? Verse 1 of chapter 2 of Hebrews, the Apostle says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we ne- neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? And was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Please take heed to the things that you've heard. Lest at any time you should let it slip. If you're not saved, know of a certainty that every transgression and disobedience will receive a just recompense of reward. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And all you are doing is bringing forth fruit unto it. Remember the Bible says that they are storing up wrath unto the day of wrath and a recompense of the righteous judgment of God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Ask him to save your soul that you would have a change in who benefits from your life. If you are the Lord's, if he's found you and you are his, know then, that the greatest contentment you can ever experience and know is to bring forth fruit unto God. You don't need to covet anything more. This and this alone will bring with it pure joy. We need to live for that which He came for. We need to seek and to save that which is lost. There's nothing, as a Christian, there is nothing better than to know that your entire constitution has changed, that every part of you is now changed, that you belong to the Lord, that the law won't have dominion over you anymore, that you are free from that law, freed from that law, that you are now free to live unto God. The gift that he gave us was a freedom from sin. You know, Paul will go into it a little bit later on and explain one of the things about sin with relationship to it, and we'll talk about that next time. But your constitution and everything about you has changed. The greatest joy that you can have right now is to live for the Lord. I know it's easy to look for the toys and the things that everybody else is enjoying, but I tell you, their enjoyment doesn't last. And it doesn't last because it doesn't satisfy. But the Lord does. He is all in all. He is everything for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again, dear Lord, for the word of God. We pray, dear Lord, that you will continue to send this word into our hearts and into our lives. And not only, dear Lord, we might be able to rejoice with contentment in the work and the word of God, that we might be able to do your work that which you have commanded us to do, that we would be able to take the focus off our own selves and that we would be able to put it on the lost, to seek and to save that which was lost. And let the church never distract itself from its purpose, from what it is called to do, to preach the gospel and to make disciples of men.
And that's what we are, dear Lord. Each one of us here that have put their faith in you is a disciple of Christ. And each one of us, dear Father, have that opportunity to share the gospel of Christ to a world, dear Lord, knowing, dear Father, that there is nothing that can happen to us within our lives that can turn negative in the end. Because we know, dear Lord, that we have trusted in you. We know we have heaven as our home. Let us put these things into perspective, dear Lord, I pray, that we might be able to live a life that will bring fruit under God. And we thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.